Welcome to DW's Environment Podcast on the Green Fence. My name's Neil King. And I'm Gabe Borod. Hey. This is our final episode of our series on change amid the corona crisis. We've been looking into all sorts of ideas as to how we can use this unique window of opportunity to bring about lasting and fundamental change towards a more sustainable world. That's right. We're taking an interdisciplinary look at the idea of change. And last time, if you'll remember, we spoke with German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk about change in the mind. And he was quite surprised when we talked to him about what has gone down around the world these past few weeks, Neil. Yeah, particularly the uh, docility of the masses. And I don't think he was the only one who was surprised. The fact that all this change that has been heaved upon us, the new rules, the lockdowns, people working from home, kids out of school, all this huge change and upheaval. And we've basically just swallowed it without really complaining. And everybody's towing the line. Why can't we translate this into climate change action. Yeah, we understood the danger almost immediately and took action. Right. Right away. Yeah. Uh, Sloterdijk was talking about a, a, a pandemic of contagion, uh, that it's not the, just the virus that's spreading around the world. It's the way people think. And that got me th- thinking about social psychology. Right. The study of group dynamics, which is why today we are going to talk with one of the eminent social psychologists on the European continent, Steve Reicher of St. Andrews University, about what moves the masses. But also not just how you move the masses, but also how do you control the mass once it gets moving and And avoid it going off in the wrong direction. And the, the central question of this entire podcast series, the response to corona was immediate. Why isn't the response to climate change like that? Let's look at it from a social psychological point of view. My name's Steve Reicher. I'm a, a social psychologist at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. Uh, my interest is in group processes, collective behaviour, um, social identity, and 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 various things that uh, that flow from that. We've watched the collective move very fast in response to this crisis. I mean, it was a span of what? A few weeks and and lockdown measures that I, I, I are unprecedented just happened were yeah. you were you amazed by, by that well at one level I wasn't and that's because if you look at the literature on what happens in emergencies again the traditional literature plays into this notion of the group as a problem uh, and the public as a problem. So the idea is that human beings are always, if you like, um, uh, psychologically frail. They always have difficulty in in dealing with complex information. And under a crisis, uh, you crack. Uh, Especially when people get together, they panic. You know, you you would never have a, a Hollywood um, a disaster film without people running, screaming, waving their hands in the air uh, and blocking the exits and so dying. And actually what you find, that isn't what happens in disasters. When people come together, when they have a sense that others will support them, especially in situations of difficulty, then it makes them better able to cope and more psychologically resilient. So collectivity is the resource that allows us to cope practically, but also psychologically to get through these times. And, co- and, and resilience isn't a quality that w- is within individuals. It's a quality that develops between people when we have a sense of shared identity. So again, shared identity is absolutely critical to how we come through this. 
Okay, we have now arrived at a, at a crux of what we've been going at in this entire season of On the Green Fence, comparing the response to the Corona crisis, a very acute, immediate crisis, to something more long-term like climate change. Why was the response to Corona so seemingly so easy, particularly when, when compared to the far more existential threat of climate change? What is the difference between these two? The temporality of the issue, the, you know, the fact that it is uh, immediate, uh, the ways in which it is tangible and the way in which it is unarguable. So, for instance, if you are talking about uh, the events that are happening now due to climate change um, and that are uh, killing people, the, you know, the floods and the storms and so on, it is probabilistic that climate change was critical to them. Um, I, the probabilities are very, very high indeed, but it is not self-evident, immediately experientially uh, evident, in the same way that it's evident that somebody is dying from coronavirus. So these things become arguable. They are a matter of the ways in which we make sense of them and understand them much more when it comes to climate change. And that's where the second factor um, comes in, which is the political factor and the politicisation. Well, in some places, it has been uh, fairly consensual and it has been uh, pretty positive, and that's because politicians have not um, uh, tried to argue or mobilise against uh, compliance with uh, medically necessary measures. In other places, that's not true. So, for instance, obviously in the United States, where Trump has been supporting uh, those in various states who have been uh, calling uh, you know, lockdown tyranny. In, in Brazil, it's true. In, in, in India, it's true, and so on. And I think, I mean, the other absolutely obvious point uh, differentiating uh, coronavirus um, from uh, climate change is are the political differences and the differences in terms of political leadership in terms of a how we understand what's going on and b how we should respond to what's going on. But Steve, if, if I understood you there correctly, one one of the the cruxes there is if there were general consensus and general realization that we are facing an existential threat and everybody mm. really believed the science, um, the collective would move. Is it really that simple? Or, I mean, would, would, would you all just have to be on the same page and we would actually do something about this existential threat or is something else holding us back? I think there are various aspects of understanding and of um, framing. So, for instance, at the moment, we are acting collectively towards members of our community um, who are you know, currently there or currently alive and we can see whether they will live or die. Um, in a sense, it is much more abstract in the sense of climate change because we are acting for those who are, um, many of them, not yet born. It might be our children or our uh, grandchildren. So what I'm arguing is it's the articulation of the psychological and lived experience with the ideological, the way in which we make sense of it, explain it, tell us how to behave, which is critical. And it, the reason why the political in many ways is more powerful in undermining action on uh, climate change is because it is much more abstract. There's much less direct experience, uh, which allows us to say, no, we disagree with you, We're, we, you're wrong, we've got to do something about it. How important is the other in all this? Do we need role models to catalyze change? And if so, uh, what kind of role models? Because if, if Greta Thunberg, for instance, can't pull it off, then, then who could? 
Yeah. Well, we need leadership, and I think leadership is critical. And um, although there are, there, are, there are many factors involved, I don't think it's entirely coincidental that some of the countries where coronavirus is, is raging most, uh, most dangerously are those with, with toxic leaderships, as in uh, the United States, as in Brazil, whereas some of those which are doing well, countries like New Zealand, the leadership takes a very different form indeed. Because leadership does a number of things. And leadership, incidentally, I just want to stress, can take many forms. It doesn't have to be traditional. It doesn't have to be hierarchical. It doesn't have to be a single individual. It can be distributed. But you need voices which, number one, serve to create a sense of community and communal responsibility, who, who collectivise, who, who make us understand it's not about me, it's about us, and that we do need to act positively towards each other. Secondly, um, they need to form a relationship with the public. So, for instance, a leader needs to be seen in many ways as one of us, as acting for us, and as uh, achieving for us in order to be effective. The more, I mean, the traditional notion of leadership is that the more that divides the leader from, uh, from the group, the more effective the leader, the more the leader has got special qualities others don't have. Precisely the opposite is true. Leadership is effective to the extent that we believe that a leader is representative of us, understands who we are and what we value. So I think, I think leadership in helping us understand this is really important. And more than ever, we do need good leadership inclusive leadership, uh, leadership which engages with the public rather than imposes on the public. And this is just a reminder, you are listening to On the Green Fence, DW's environment podcast, Ruminations on Change, with me, Gabe Borud. And me, Neil King, and we're currently talking to Steve Reicher, a social psychologist from St. Andrews University in Scotland. And uh, the next question that we wanted to ask him, that we wanted to get personal with him and ask him if he, as a social psychologist, could mould the change that we would need for a sustainable world, how would he go about putting the collective on the right track? The first thing that I think is absolutely important is to understand that you know, the group is always going to be part of the solution. Okay. Now, let me be clear about that. Groups can do awful things uh, and groups can do magnificent things. The problem doesn't lie in group psychology per se. It depends in, on the specific ideologies, cultures which define the groups we belong to. You know, how inclusive or exclusive are they? Secondly, what are the norms and values which define the nature of our community? Are they you know, pro-social? Are they uh, values of compassion? Or are they values of strength and domination and so on? So not all groups are good, but that depends upon the group culture. The thing that is absolutely clear, however, is that if you get rid of groups then you get rid of the one vehicle of change that we've actually got, OK? Um, so if you get rid of groups, you freeze the status quo where it is because it's a, it's a simple point, but it's an important point. The power of the powerless lies in their combination. So anti-collectivism is by its very nature uh, reactionary and in understanding the things which make our groups more or less progressive, uh, more or less inclusive, more or less compassionate, I think we can wield that power uh, for good rather than for ill. And the problem is sometimes that 
you know, uh, the dictators, I don't know whether they have a theoretical knowledge, but they certainly have an intuitive knowledge of how to build on um, uh, these collective factors in order to wield collective power uh, to do destructive things uh, and to create unequal societies. Steve, on a personal level, do you think we're going to pull this off? I mean, if the science is right, we, we are running out of time when it comes to the, the, the changes that have to be made. Are we going to be magnificent or are we going to be horrible? See, one of the problems I have, and, and it, it, it's a problem I have with the debate that's going on at the moment, you know, so some people are telling us that, um, you know, that coronavirus is going to change the world for the good. We're going to realise that collectivity is terrible. We're going to realise that precarity is destructive. We're going to realise that inequalities kill. And other people are saying, no, 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 it's going to be completely awful. We're all going to be divided. Uh, we're going to have to risk a recession, which is going to set us against each other. I think the point is that the danger of making predictions in those forms is that it gives rise to fatalism. Either you believe, well, it's going to be awful, nothing I can do about it, or you believe it's going to happen anyway, and therefore I don't need to do anything about it. I mean, those were the critiques, for instance, of, of mechanical forms of, of, of Marxism in the past. I don't think there is any inevitable outcome to be had. I'm not a prophet. I'm not going to uh, prophesy, but I am going to say, look, I think that if we want to move forward progressively, we've got to harness the power of the collective. We've got to understand how it's in the collective that actually we become more fully human. We become agents who can actually make and change our own world. And then to understand the aspects of that group process, which are critical to determining what sort of outcome uh, we have. So I will resist, as I say, predicting, not uh, because I don't want to. I would love to be able to say it's all going to be sunny. But actually, I think to predict is to be counterproductive. It pacifies people. It says the future will be like this, rather than to say, we need to fight for the future, and here are tools to help you fight for the future more effectively. Okay, um, we've had a bit of time to think about Steve Reich's input there, Gabe. The alarm. It's on. Right, three minutes for debrief. Um, shall I start? Sure. The main takeaway for me, for what he said there, with the main sentence was, the group is the main vehicle for change that we have. Hmm. So... If we want to transform anything or get on a more sustainable track, we're going to need the group. We're going to need to get the mass moving. It sounds very simple and self-explanatory. Now, he goes further. Without the group, there is stagnation. Change is impossible. Right. Status quo. Without group formation, without group, group dynamics, status quo. But the, 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 the thing that I find a bit scary about that is social change, right? Especially also mass change, mass movements. There's always a byproduct or there's always something that might happen which you can't control. You won't know the final outcome once you get the group moving. I think it can be tricky to control the group. Hmm. Um, and that's something where I'm a, bit, I'm a bit ambivalent towards the group. On the one hand, you know, it can be exhilarating to be part of a group and go in one direction and feel like, hey, we're finally moving something, changing something. But on the other hand, I think it can also be really scary. And if the group gets out of control, it could merge into something like, you know, in this instance, eco-dictatorship, right? With, with the mass controlling perhaps individuals who don't want to toe the line. Yeah. Steve Reicher made, made it clear that groups do bad and good things. The anti-collectivist idea. That, I, that, that surprised me. That we have been almost 
I don't know, conditioned to avoid or to be afraid of group dynamics, that the crowd is the unconscious, uncontrollable mob. He he really, it seemed to me that he was all about the, the positive, or he wanted to stress the, the positive potential mm. of, of the group. And but, I think that's something to, but, to take away from this. But on a personal level, right? I mean, we've all been to concerts. We've been, you know, that, that's something where it's, where it's exhilarating, where you're sharing an experience where you feel maybe like a group. Um, demonstrations can also be exhilarating. It can be empowering. No, oh, it's euphoric. Yeah. But on the other hand, sometimes, I don't know, if I'm too long with a group, it scares me after a while. I have to get out of it again. Hmm. I don't want to be, you know, for, for maybe a split moment in time, it's fine to be part of a group. Hmm. But then I, I want to go my own way again after that. Yeah, when it, when it comes to groups getting out of control, that's where another thing that he stressed, the importance of good leaders. Right. That, And I'm just thinking, there's an election in the States this year, how important it is to, to vote. Democracy, when you think about group dynamics and how important it is to have good leaders, voting becomes more important than... Maybe voting is now more important than ever before. Yeah, the role models. Um, You also made that nice comparison with the corona crisis right now that, (laughs) interestingly enough, the countries that are dealing best with the crisis are the ones with, well... With good leadership in his book. Not say. toxic leaders, is that <laughs> I think, I think that's what the word he used. Not toxic <laughs> leaders, yeah. Oh. oh. All right, well, that's the alarm. That's going to be the last alarm you ever hear uh, from On the Green Fence this season. Yeah, that wraps up this series. It's over. Right? So we've had a lot of thoughts in this series, um, <laughs> very complex ideas. Um, I think we can agree on the fact that the corona crisis has opened our eyes to the fact that change is possible in a very fast period of time yeah if we set our mind to it I'm, and that, me, that gives me hope every single person we talk to here the common denominator for me is that change is in the mind all right well, well, well. If, if you got to this point listener <laughs> good on you yeah because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are exhausted <laughs> I need a, we're just I need about a, done <laughs> i need a vacation i don't know about <laughs> thank you for staying with us and 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 for sharing and 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 getting in touch uh, this has been Quite a roller coaster here. Absolutely. The podcast is available on all your podcast platforms Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get it. Just please check it out. Spread the word, because that is also one lesson from this series. We've got to spread the word to get the collective to move. So please do. Nice summary there, Neil. On the Greed Fest, let's burn this thing. Hey, but we mustn't forget the credits. Uh, this podcast was produced by me, Neil King. And me, Gabe Borud. We had help from Anke Rasper and Tamsin Walker, and our executive producer was Vanessa Fischer. And our sound engineers, we can't forget them, Jürgen Kuhn and Christoph Grover. On the Green Fence is brought to you by DW in Bonn, Germany. And now we're out.